Kimar and his people have a problem. The children of their country are depressed and listless. When Kimar's wife sends him to the local wise man for advice, this Chochem tells him that the kids see the happiness of Christmas on their TV sets and are pining for what they cannot have. Kimar sees this as a challenge, takes up the gauntlet, and vows to bring Santa Claus to his people. The complication is that Kimar lives on Mars, but the noble Kimar isn't going to let that get in his way. It sounds like the plot for a charming Christmas special. Well, it, it's Christmassy as all get out, but not many would call it charming. In fact, it's noted as one of the worst movies ever made. What do you do with such a terrible film? Why, you give it the Mystery Science Theater 3000 treatment, of course. And now a deep 13 holiday presentation. Piazzadora in Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. Shield your eyes, Frank. This is exactly what Joel Hodgson and Best Brain Studios did back in 1991 for episode 21 of their third season. And the result is what we're talking about in the 51st episode of Celluloid Days. Join us, won't you? They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas multipass. Multipass. You know this multipass. Your stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. Before we get into the breakdown of the MST3K episode, here's a bit of behind the scenes on the making of this weird little movie from a guy who literally needs no introduction. Well, hello there, Jeff here. You know, I thought I'd just make a guest appearance and wish everybody a happy holiday, no matter what you celebrate. Or even if you don't celebrate anything at all, I hope you and yours are having a fantastic time. Hey, did you know that Santa Claus Conquers the Martians features the first screen appearance of Mrs. Claus? Well, at least according to Wikipedia. So I found this newspaper article from September of 1964 by Bernie Bookbinder. It was published just a few months before the film's release, and I thought I would read it because I found it a bit interesting. This is Andy Henderson at the North Pole. Ooh, it's cold up here. <laughs> From this spot, there's only one direction you can go, and that's south. <laughs> the shooting schedule at the Long Island studio was incredibly short, the budget unmentionably low, and the cast unusually obscure. But to everyone connected with it, Santa Claus Conquers the Martians looks like a moneymaker. It should be. The reason is Paul L. Jacobson, an unHollywoodish producer who dares to think small. As even its prospective audience of 5 to 11 years old is likely to suspect, the film pairs Santa with space, a combination calculated to attract kids like the Pied Piper. Jacobson, a TV executive making his first movie, said, Santa is designed to fill the void that exists in films, particularly Christmas films, made especially for children. This one will be distributed by Joseph E. Levine, a man who loves to fill voids, especially in bank accounts. Where did this yuletide science fiction fantasy start? 
It began in February or March, recalled Jacobson, whose independent Jowler Productions had intended to make its first movie in the fall from a suspense novel called Cry Havoc. Arnie Leeds, a friend and now associate producer and production manager of Santa, and I were talking, and he said, while I was waiting for Havoc, why not do something that's needed? I said that what's needed are Christmas films for children. I wanted a story with the Christmas spirit and Santa Claus, but with action and suspense too, something for kids to identify with, Jacobson said. When researching at the New York Library failed to turn up anything, Jacobson wrote the story himself in less than an hour. I wrote three quarters of the treatment on a train to Mamaroneck. I read it to my children as a bedtime story, and they reacted very well. That gave me the confidence. The story deals with the kidnapping of Santa Claus by some Martians in an attempt to inject fun into Mars' highly automated but joyless culture. Although it's a fast-moving comic adventure tale, it could be viewed on another level as a warning of technological dehumanization. Within a couple of weeks, Jacobson found a scriptwriter, Glenn Merrith, and the production was underway. With spaceship-like speed for a full-length color film, Jacobson got the final script in four weeks, prepared the studio in eight days, and shot the picture in ten. With the last six weeks spent in editing, scoring, mixing sound, and titling, it was hoped that the finished picture could be given to Levine on his birthday this week. A Christmas present for his birthday, Jacobson said. But the movie business tolerates sentimentality only in its product. Unexpected delays will prevent Levine from getting his film for another two weeks. Not only was this movie made quickly, it was made cheaply. Jacobson declined to say how cheaply, but if Cleopatra was a blockbuster, Santa is a firecracker. But yet everyone connected with the film insists that the quality not be sacrificed. Instead of money, we used ingenuity, contended Leeds, also a former television executive. We shot this film in TV fashion. You know, in live TV, we had to get it right the first time. In the set-cluttered, converted hangar of the Michael Meyerberg studio, Leeds pressed his point about ingenuity. He indicated a colorful, mechanical-looking contraption in the antiseptic workshop of the Martians constructed for Santa. That was rented from a TV studio, he said. It was part of a giant clarinet used as a backdrop and a spectacular. The workshop control panel came from the fail-safe movie set. The nose of that Martian spaceship was the ceiling of a nightclub in a chewing gum commercial. Art director Maurice Gordon pointed to some of the reddish clothing and papier-mâché rocks. We borrowed those from television. We painted them green and used them for outdoor scenes. We painted them white for the North Pole, and we painted them red for Mars. Upside down in white, they were polar crevices, and upside down in red, they were a Martian cave. Gordon's explanation was interrupted by two juvenile Martians who ran by with green leotards and football-like helmets with antennas protruding from them. Their faces were green. Why green? Well, Gordon said, it's a Christmas color, particularly alongside Santa's red suit. And then people tend to think of those from outer space as little green men. In this picture, everything dealing with Mars has to be different but recognizable. We gave the Martians round beds and cubed-shaped pillows, for example. 
Three bells rang and suddenly it was silent. That means they're shooting, Gordon whispered. Three sinister Martians entered Santa's workshop and began sabotaging some of the machinery. The scene took a couple of minutes. Okay, print that, called out Director Nicholas Webster. While the next scene was being set up, Webster, a highly regarded TV documentary director and newly turned movie maker, said a high degree of cooperation had been achieved among the producers, cast, and technicians. We've been shooting about four takes for every one we use, Webster said. That's a very low ratio. Sometimes it can run 15 or 20 to 1. How did it feel directing a children's fantasy after filming documentaries on epilepsy, famine, and racial problems? It's a pleasure, Webster said. To be doing something non-controversial and happy, it's all part of the same business. You know, this really isn't any different than Hollywood. As if to prove him right, a child actor grimaced while his mother brushed back his errant hair. Mother, please, the boy whined. You're messing my makeup. We don't want to hurt you, Santa Claus, so come along quietly. Well, I found that interesting anyway. I hope you did too. Once again, I want to thank Nancy and Gordon for filling in this month. We couldn't have made 50 episodes without your guys' help. I'll be back the first Monday of January where we'll be talking about the film Ed Wood. To everybody out there, happy holidays. Thanks, Jeff. As always, you're the king of film history. As an addendum to Jeff's behind-the-scenes info, especially regarding the inclusion of Mrs. Claus in the story, the next appearance of Mrs. Claus would come a mere three weeks later with the release of the Rankin-Bass stop-motion classic Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. This movie is also the first screen appearance of a little girl who would grow up to become a bit of a name if you count being Queen of the Golden Raspberry Awards as notoriety. Pia Zadora makes her screen debut here as Little Germar, born Pia Alfreda Schipani to a violinist father and theatrical wardrobe supervisor mother, I'm guessing it just seemed natural to encourage the kid to join the theatrical life. She took her mother's maiden name as a working name, and the rest is history. After Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, she didn't really work much as an actress, but she had some success with musical performance. In 1972, while on tour with a musical production, she met Meshulam Riklis, hope I'm pronouncing that right, a money man with fingers in a lot of pies. They married in 1977, despite his being 30 years older than young Pia, and soon, Pia Zadora landed a breakthrough part as the Dubonnet girl in print and TV ads for the aperitif wine. It should come as a surprise to nobody that Rickless was a shareholder in that company. In 1982, Pia starred along with Stacy Keach in the torrid drama Butterfly, the plot of which involved father-daughter incest. Somehow, Zadora won a Golden Globe for Best New Star for her performance in this film, 
which probably had nothing to do with her husband putting up a series of billboard ads promoting her, a Piazzadora Playboy magazine appearance, and some entertainment of Golden Globes voters. No, not a coincidence. It's no surprise that the film was massively panned and even won a 1982 Razzie Award for both Worst New Star and Worst Actress. During the MST riff, there are several references to Pia's Golden Globe. You could probably make a drinking game out of it if you were so inclined. After this, Zadora would continue to appear in odd, uncomfortable, and sometimes sleazy films, including a terrible production of The Lonely Lady, based on the Harold Robbins novel of the same name. In 1985, Zadora started leaning on her strengths, this being her musical talent, and starred as the earthly love interest of an extraterrestrial in the musical comedy Voyage of the Rock Aliens. Let's just say it's no Earth Girls are easy. Her career pretty much continued like this until the 21st century, with one odd production after another, and in 2000, she was nominated at the 20th Golden Raspberry Awards, a.k.a. the Razzies, as Worst Actress of the Century, sadly losing out to Madonna. But enough of this rabbit trail. Let's dive into Season 3, Episode 21 of Mystery Science Theater 3000. After the opening credits, we open with Tom and Crow mulling over a pile of classic Christmas catalogs and musing on the glory of the days of hunting through these sacred tomes for your Christmas picks. They tell Joel their wishes. Crow gets a little dark. Commercial sign in 15 seconds. Hey, you guys, what are you doing? Oh, just looking at catalogs. Dreaming. Well, have you guys thought about what you want for Christmas? Yeah, meet me. I want a Ted Williams signature inflatable bathtub pillow. Oh, Gypsy. I want a pony. <laughs> oh, Gypsy, we don't have room on please, this ship for please. a pony. <laughs> no, can't do it. What about you, Crow? I want to decide who lives and who dies. Huh? Oh, I don't know. Commercial sign in five, four, three, two, commercial sign out. We'll be right back. After the commercial break, and since we're right in the golden years of the Joel era, the first host segment is the Invention Exchange. The Mads go full evil with the Wish Squisher, a diabolical device that can turn any cool gift into something soul-crushingly depressing. Up on the Satellite of Love, Joel and the bots pay homage to the Island of Misfit Toys from the Rankin-Bass stop-motion film Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. You know, Joel, I was wondering, do you think if they sent that really crummy gift through the machine again, it might turn into something neat? Hush, boy. You'll anger the overlords. Hello, sirs. Our invention exchange this week is based on our Yuletide musings about what would be on the island of misfit toys, based on Rankin-Bass's production of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Whoever heard of a Charlie in the box? Exactly. Check it out. Here's a new contribution. Uh, buttery sweet poster dolls. Ooh, yeah. yeah. Or play Patrick Swayze's Roadhouse board game. Become a highly paid Tai Chi wielding, philosophically alert bouncer like Patrick Swayze in Roadhouse. Shake the dice. Get in a potentially dangerous situation and use the catchphrase cards to lash out at your opponents with sayings like, It's my way or the highway. Hurts, don't it? And you're my new Saturday night thing. Yeah. 
Then it's movie sign, and we're immediately subjected to the opening credits and a dopey attempt at a hip new Christmas classic song. It is neither hip nor classic. Joel and the bots do try to get into the swing of things, though. Cha-cha-cha! There's nothing like a remote newscast to engage the kiddies, so that's how we open. We're on location at the North Pole, or a bad set representing it, where Andy the newscaster gives us a tour of Santa's workshop. When he spots a green-faced doll in a helmet and cape, he has questions. I've been wondering, what is this strange little creature I'm over Batman. here? Oh, uh, Winky made that. Winky said. That's his idea of a Martian. A Martian? <laughs> Wowie wow, I'd hate to meet a creature like that on a dark night. Ooh. Hate to meet Blinky on a dark night. I wonder if there night. really are people on Mars. Well, who Makes knows? you think, don't it, huh? Well, if there are, I hope they have someone like you up there, Santa, to bring joy and good cheer to all the Martian children. Oh, oh you flatter me. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Uh, Keep going, Winky. Christmas Eve is coming soon. Now, Mr. Anderson, I want to show you some more. This is a natural place to segue to the embodiment of said doll on Mars. Seems like Winky the Elf has intel that surpasses even Santa's. Is he a CIA spook? The question is never answered satisfactorily, alas. In this first scene on Mars, we meet the stalwart Kimar. A lot of the folks on Mars have the suffix mar appended to their names, so brace yourself for some lazy naming conventions. Someone whose name does not end in mar is our resident comic relief annoying sidekick Droppo. Constantly dodging any real work, he elicits my favorite line from the whole movie. Droppo! You are the laziest man on Mars. Why are you sleeping during working hours? Because I'm the laziest man on Mars. I'm sleeping, Chief. It's just that I haven't been able to sleep these last few nights. Hmm? He's been drunk off his Martian butt. So I was just practicing. (laughs) Mostly I use it on my cats, as in, Rigel, you're the laziest cat on Mars. He never seems to get the joke. Maybe because we're not on Mars. I don't know. Anyway, Droppo is supposed to be watching the children, who are mesmerized by TV drivel beamed in from Earth somehow. Here we meet Kimar's kids, a little boy and girl, Bomar and Gurmar. Bomar and Gurmar, get it? Don't say I didn't warn you. They're sad and want to know what Santa Claus and love are. Dad has no answers, so he just forces them to sleep. Cut for time in the MST version is a following scene where Kimar talks to his wife, Momar, yeah, another brilliant name, about their worries about the kids. She suggests he see their local wise man, Chochem. And aside here is that Chochem is a Yiddish word for sage, as in wise man, although they pronounce it sort of oddly in the film. Chochem identifies the problem and says that the children of Mars need to be allowed to be children and that Santa is part of a healthy childhood. Naturally, Kimar decides to go to Earth and kidnap the jolly old elf. We're also introduced here to our resident curmudgeon and bad guy, the perpetually angry Voldar and his spectacular mustache. There's only one Santa Claus and he's on Earth. (laughs) Sorry. Well, I guess that takes care of that. 
Didn't I tell you it was a foolish idea to seek advice from that old man? This is a serious matter, Voldar. And desperate problems require desperate deeds. Dunder Chief. Earth has had Santa Claus long enough. We will bring him to Mars. I'm against it. Our children are fine the way they are. We leave for Earth tonight. Pack your other mustache. Kimar and his crack squad head for Earth, discovering the stowaway Droppo on the way. Nobody escapes Droppo. Then it's time for the second host segment. Crow, like the makers of this film, has written what he believes will be an instant Christmas classic song. Let's have a Patrick Swayze Christmas. It has issues. You wrote a Christmas song? Hey, there's no tradition like a new tradition. <laughs> Wait a minute, let's have a Patrick Swayze Christmas? Uh, yeah, yeah, based on my favorite movie, Roadhouse. Come on, what the heck does Patrick Swayze have to do with Christmas? Hey, you keep Christmas in your way and let me keep it in mine, okay? Jeez. Oh, uh, come on, sir, it seems like a nice enough sentiment. We can give it a shot, come All on. All right, okay, okay. Uh, 12 eight time, uh, uh -huh. key of A flat major. Oh, uh, Cambot, shoot him the tune. Uh, okay, you'll just have to stay with me, everybody, okay? Uh, your parts are written out. Let's have a Patrick Swayze Christmas. By Crow T Robot. <clears throat> Hit it, Cambot. Oh, oh, I start. I yeah, get it. I'm sorry. Okay, pick it up. Let's have a Patrick Swayze Christmas this year. Or we'll tear your throat out and kick oh, you oh, in the ear. Hold it, hold it, Cambot. Stop it. Talk. Joel calls out Crow for putting action sequences in a holiday song, but they soldier on to a brilliant finish. It's my way or the highway this Christmas at my bar. I'll have to smash your kneecaps if you bastards touch my car. I got the word that Santa has been stealing from the till. I think that that right jolly old elf better make out his will. Then it's back into the movie. Children are kidnapped, Santa is kidnapped, and a very plot point specific news agency keeps the world updated at every turn. A few seasons after this episode aired in the Mike Nelson in Space years, they riffed a film called Space Mutiny, a cheesy space opera starring a retired football player and Cameron Mitchell, and full of stock footage lifted from the original Battlestar Galactica TV series. This episode is famous for Mike and the Bots generating a laundry list of alternate names for the beefcakey hero guy. In this movie, the names for the Martians are already goofy, so it's super easy to make up even more of them. I don't know why, but whenever MST does this with names, it always makes me laugh. Lomas, you remain on guard and have the ship ready for immediate blast-off. Because we've landed. Rigna, Hargo, Voldar, you'll accompany Steeder, buzz me. Bomb, ring job. We'll activate Torg. Rigna, Voldar. Ringworm, crankcase, lube job. Rigna, Lomas. If the story weren't cheesy already, the movie isn't helped by the cheap costumes and sets. Jeff has already covered the low-budget approach the filmmakers took to this project, and it's all there on the screen. The Martian spacecraft interiors make the Rocky Jones shorts look like 2001 A Space Odyssey. The exteriors aren't too great either. You know, these are like cheap versions of the Lost in Space sets. 
By the third host segment, the bots are kind of hurting from the dumpster fire that is this movie. Joel decides they need a good Christmas film as a palate cleanser, so he's conned TV's Frank into sending up some classics. And some suspiciously derivative and unimaginative Hallmark Channel-esque titles. Ah, Ricky, get me a scotch! I'm suffering Christmas depression! Charles, <laughs> hey, Joel, couldn't we see a more cheerful movie? Like maybe The Sorrow and the Pity? Oh, well, I got that all covered, you guys. I, uh, I... Uh, trick Frank into sending up a bunch of movies up here, wow. and it's something we can watch after the experiment. Let's Great. see, we got uh, Grinch Who Stole Christmas. Oh, wow. uh, you're sure that's not the fish who saved Pittsburgh? Yes, my little Huckleberry friend. We oh, also nice. got Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol. No. Oh, Jim Backus lives. <laughs> and uh, Frosty the Snowman. Frosty the Snowman! Jackie Vernon did not die in vain! Woo-hoo. Right, we've got uh, Rankin Bass's uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. All right, brutalized guy! Hey, 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 uh, he's not dead. Oh, sorry, bro. Yeah, and then we've got uh, a Charlie Brown Christmas. Oh, boy, I love that one. we got a few others here, though, that's kind of going to the bottom of the bag here, kind of some low-budget ones. Cool. The Christmas That Totally Ruled, it's uh, about a curmudgeon old man that learns the true meaning of Christmas. Fresh idea. The Christmas That Wasn't That Bad, which is about a curmudgeon old woman who learns the true meaning of Christmas. Sorry. And then there's... The Christmas That Really Kicked Ass, which is about a curmudgeon old man oh. and a curmudgeon old woman that learns the true meaning Then it's movie sign, and we're back in. The Martians have kidnapped Santa and are headed back to Mars, which means we're treated to more on-the-nose reporting from the all-seeing news channel with a bunch of stock footage that doesn't really illustrate anything. On the Martian spaceship, things are looking grim. Santa tries to cheer up the kidnapped Earth kids, but they're gloomy. Santa, you're just about as funny as a train wreck. And don't you think that was funny? Yes, Santa. It's just that we're Norwegian. Uh, well, why don't you laugh? Then, in a pretty dark turn for a kid's movie, Voldar tries to toss Santa and the children out an airlock. Turns out Santa is pretty wily, though, so the plan ends up with Voldar in cuffs and headed for the brig. Once they get to Mars, Voldar escapes, of course, and scuttles off to hook up with his sketchy gang and plan more mischief. A whole lot of action is packed into the next few minutes. Santa is introduced to the Martian kids, and they're instantly cheered up. Yay! Santa sets up a Martian toy factory and puts the kids to work in it. Yay? Voldar hatches a plan to kidnap Santa, or re-kidnap, and either whack him or hold him hostage until Kimar agrees to send him back to Earth. It's not really clear. As further insult, Droppo wants to play Santa, but he's too skinny. For the fourth host segment, everybody on the Satellite of Love reads their Christmas essays. Crows is basically marketing advice for Santa's elves. Tom muses about realistic limitations for Santa, trying to deliver toys in space. He calls it a child's Christmas in space. And Joel goes gritty with a piece on classic holiday office parties full of booze and misogyny. It's all kind of depressing until Gypsy offers her commentary by opening her big old mouth to reveal a charming nativity scene. Aww. Back in the movie, the story, of course, ends on a happy note. All loose ends are tied up. Santa is basically a Marty Stew hero with untold superpowers and is never in any real danger. 
He's headed back to Earth with the kids from Earth, but he's left his mark on Mars and declares that they don't need him because Droppo makes a great Santa. Can't argue with that logic. Well, you could, but is it really worth it? Anyway, roll the credits. And roll that irritating song again. Only this time, we get a follow the bouncing ball scroll of lyrics encouraging the viewer to sing along. S A T A M T A. Hooray for Sanity Claw. Is it over now? Yeah. Oh, jeez. As previously stated, the filmmakers really wanted that song to be a hit. Sadly, it never even made the charts. For the fifth and final host segment, Joel and the bots open their stockings. Joel's has a letter, which he reads. I always found the letter reading segments very charming. They discontinued the letter reading a few years later, maybe when they got picked up by the Sci-Fi Channel, I don't remember. You know, they wanted less hometown show and more of a produced host segment storyline kind of thing, and brains complied. Down in Deep 13, the Mads exchange gifts in a parody of the Gift of the Magi. Merry Christmas, Dr. Forrester. Merry Christmas, Frank. Oh, Frank, what a lovely watch band. This must have set you back a pretty penny. Well, actually, I uh, didn't have any money, so I took the liberty of hawking your Rolex and... <laughs> You to pay for that. Hawked <laughs> my Rolex. Well, it's the thought that counts. Open your gift. Oh boy, I bet it's a book. I bet it's a book. Yes, it is a book, Frank. It's it's called Final Exit. I've been stealing your plasma at night, so I didn't have to spend any of my own money. <laughs> oh, Henry. Well, until next time, Bumpus. God bless us, everyone. Ow. This episode's stinger, a moment at the end of the credits where we get bonus recapped clips from the movie, is Voldar's annoying evil laugh. <laughs> Excuse me, sir? Yes? Um, well, I'm a young filmmaker and a real big fan. I, I just wanted to meet you. My pleasure. I'm Orson Welles. I'm uh, Edward D. Wood, Jr. What you working on? Well, the financing just fell through for the third time on Don Quixote. Do you know I can't believe it? That sounds just exactly like my problems. It's the damn money, men. You never know who's a windbag and who's got the goods. And then they all think they're directors. Ain't that the truth? Do you know that I've even had producers recut my movies? I hate when that happens. And they're always trying to cast their buddies. It doesn't even matter if they're right for the part. Tell me about it. I'm supposed to do a thriller at Universal but they want Charlton Heston to play a Mexican. Ah, Mr. Wells, is it all worth it? It is when it works. We have a Facebook page, and it's called, naturally, Celluloid Days. Please join us there to comment and discuss the films we cover. We're also on Twitter at celluloid underscore days. We're always looking for film suggestions. The more strange and unusual, the better. Our email address is daysofcelluloid, all one word, at gmail.com. Feel free to email us for any reason, even if it's just to say hi to Jeff. He likes that, really. 
Be sure to leave us a review wherever you get this podcast. It will help others find the show. Thanks to all of you for listening. And Jeff will be back next week to talk about the 1994 Tim Burton biopic, Ed Wood. <laughs> They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They're 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. Multipass. You know this multipass. Your stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing.